Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Callender Show. I'm the Pete. This is the show. It's hour number three, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. The email is Pete at thepetecallendershow.com. And uh, that's Callender with a K. You can also hit me up on Twitter, at Pete Callender. I'm over there, too. And I'm on the Facebook, too. But not so much anymore. So an update on uh, the story we covered earlier in the week about the uh, the closing of the Central Avenue flea market, open-air market, whatever you want to call it. It was over there at Eastland Mall. And uh, there were, like, all these vendors which would set up, and they were predominantly Hispanic. Sorry, Latinx. Um, and uh, they were... Uh, they were told, hey, the city's, you know, going to be redeveloping this property, so you, you can't you can't be here anymore, and uh, the lease had expired for the, for the site, but apparently whoever organizes it never told everybody, and so people were there, and then they got rousted out like a homeless camp or something, and uh, some, now people are trying to find another place to be, right? They're trying to set up this open-air market, but they've been waiting on the city to identify some sites for them, and the city has not done so because the city has a whole checklist of you know things that got to make sure it's big enough and got to make sure it's paved, but it's got to be kind of newly paved. It can't be like broken up pavement because you don't want anybody tripping and falling. And so you can't, so all of a sudden you start getting this, you know, overly regulatory bureaucratic kind of approach to problem solving. So at the city council meeting on Monday night, a whole bunch of people showed up complaining that the city has not made good on its promise. And Councilman Tark Bakari then said, hey, you know what? Me and the four Republicans who are running at large, he called them his team, that were there, he said, we're going to work on this and we're going to get you a place. And Councilman Malcolm Graham, Democrat, turned to the Republican Bakari and said, you shouldn't write checks you can't cash. And... Uh, Bakari acknowledged he's taking a big risk. So yesterday afternoon, Bakari said he held a news conference with his fellow Republican uh, candidates and said he has helped secure a temporary replacement for an open air market. Vendors from the market formerly off of Central Avenue, many of whom are let. Oh, wait a minute. Whoa. The Charlotte Observer used the term Latino. Hello, bigots. Oh, my gosh. Mass firings after, of course, the retraining sessions. It's Latinx. Duh. I mean, even though Latinos and Hispanics, they hate the term and nobody uses it except, you know, progressive uh, academics and such and uh, virtue signalers. But, uh, yeah, you guys better be careful. You're going to get canceled. Oh, Anyway, they say the city, the vendors say the city has failed to keep its promises to help them find a new location. Um, Let me skip ahead here. Bakari said that he worked with private sector partners and a nonprofit to secure a location in Uptown for the market on Saturday. He was joined by a slate of Republican candidates running for mayor and city council. So this is, I guess, just for Saturday. The market will be held in a series of parking lots between... Uh, 6th Streets, uh, 6th Street and 9th Streets, and between Brevard and Caldwell Streets. That is near the Spectrum Center and First Ward Park. It'll be open to the public from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. 
Councilman Bakari said he believes the space is large enough to accommodate all 150 or so vendors who previously worked at the Central Avenue location. He said he believes the city is just a few weeks away from securing a permanent location. The temporary site is secured for just this Saturday. But he said he and his partners are going to look to find locations every weekend until the permanent site is ready. So that's what he is doing. This is also, remember, these were the guys, these same candidates, they were the ones who uh, who came up with the, the bulletproof glass to be installed in the, the CATS buses, the Charlotte area transit buses, after uh, the bus driver was shot and killed. And I think another bus driver just more recently was shot at, I believe. And so Bakari and the Republican slate, they were like, hey, we got, you know, this private company. They made a prototype. We can we can install these. Here's the cost. Here's a solution. And you know me. That's right. I'm all about solutions. And so uh, it seemed to me like, hey, this would be an easy thing to do to give the bus driver some protection. Apparently, the drivers had different ideas. Yeah, they yeah. So they got pay raises, and now they just uh, they're they're just not showing up to work anymore. I mean, that is one way to avoid getting shot at by uh, the crime. Which I saw. What was it? The CMPD. They did their press conference today. They uh, unveiled the the quarterly crime stats, and uh, yeah, violent crimes on the rise increased over the, in the last quarter. I know. I'm as shocked as you are. One could one could not make that assessment just based on <laughs> based on the coverage. Um, so that's good uh, that uh, the vendors have gotten a place, uh, it seems like, you know, at least temporarily until they can find the next site. Meanwhile, this is not, by the way, that effort by Bakari and the Republicans, I don't believe is part of the larger effort um, that Republic the Republican National Party is doing to attract Hispanic voters. Right. I, I'm not sure if this is part of it, but sometimes... Doing the right thing is good politics, right? They, there's overlap. The Republican Party, though, is launching a program now. This is a new initiative to help immigrants and prospective voters prepare for the civics portion of the naturalization test. This is a great idea. It's So this is from Axios, written by Sophia Kai. And uh, she says it's part of a concerted move by the Republican Party to reach out to immigrants and build a multiracial coalition of working class voters, a particularly notable move for a party that had a singular focus on restricting immigration under former President Donald Trump. (sighs) This is so annoying. It's so exhausting. Restricting illegal immigration, illegal immigration. The first of the Republican Civics Initiative 10-hour training course is going to be held down in Doral, Florida at the RNC Hispanic Community Center, or as Dr. Jill Biden calls it, the Unique Breakfast Tacos Community Center. That's her term for it. Um, they got training materials that are adapted from the Citizenship and Immigration Services Civics Curriculum. Um, the RNC has spent millions of dollars on more than 30 minority community centers, including 12 Hispanic centers in addition to a handful of black, Asian Pacific American, Jewish, and Native American community centers across the country. I brought you those stories um, several uh, weeks back. And this has 
Democrats very, very concerned, and we talked about this yesterday, this realignment is occurring. The Elysium Party and then a coalition, multiracial coalition of working class voters that are primarily motivated by economics. So we'll see if it works. Seminem. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Alrighty, so uh, Hoke County Democrat activists, Wanda Blue and Julia Shaw. Do you remember these two? No, probably not. March 2016? No? Still not ringing a bell? It's almost like it didn't get a lot of coverage. They got indicted. Hoke County, North Carolina, got the, these two women... Got indicted. For what, Pete? Glad you asked. For harvesting a combined 21 absentee ballots from Hoke County nursing home patients. Okay. Julia Shaw was indicted of possessing 13 ballots. She pleaded guilty. But Wanda Blue, she negotiated an Alford plea. You know what an Alford plea is? (laughs) This is... One of the amazing things, which is it's basically pleading guilty without saying I'm guilty. An Alfred plea just means uh, you got enough information and evidence against me that I know I'm totally going to lose. So rather than pleading guilty, I'm just going to say Alfred plea and take the conviction. Practical purposes, it's the same thing. So anyway, um, But get this. So this is the story. 2020 convictions, as told by uh, the Voter Integrity Project, and recounted here at johnlock.org by our friend Dr. Andy Jackson. He's the director of the Civitas Center for Public Integrity at the John Locke Foundation. Um, uh, Their their convictions were prompted by uh, an investigation um, that started in a March 2016 primary, all right? Now, according to federal judge Terrence W. Boyle, this should not have been a conviction. He issued a summary judgment in a case, Disability Rights North Carolina versus North Carolina State Board of Elections. He issued this over the weekend, striking down the North Carolina prohibition of, get this, assisted living facility owners, managers, or employees from marking ballots on behalf of their patients or helping those patients mark their ballots. The ruling provides a green light for elected officials, political party office holders, or candidates to provide such assistance all of whom are similarly prohibited by North Carolina law from doing so. This is going to get very bad. This is going to get very bad. All of these assisted living homes with patients in them who are, uh, you know, in declining mental faculties, they, they don't know who they are, they are suffering from various uh, memory issues and the like. And they're going to get assistance. They're, you're, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Judge Boyle. 
What else? Oh, he also partially struck down North Carolina's ban on ballot trafficking. So now anybody can take possession of the ballots of disabled people. Any voter, this is Section 208 of the federal law, any voter who requires assistance to vote by reason of blindness, disability, or inability to read or write may be given assistance by a person of the voter's choice other than the voter's employer or agent of that employer or officer or agent of the voter's union. That's the federal law. They have a carve out there. They have an exemption for who? Your boss, so your company, right? Anybody in your company that's in your management team or whatever, or your union. And why are those exemptions there? Andy Jackson points out they're there to protect voters from intimidation or manipulation. That same protection was the purpose of the state's law that prohibited assisted living facilities, their managers, employees, whatever, from doing the same thing. Those people in the in the facilities, right, they have power over their patients and can subject large numbers of them to intimidation or manipulation. And he says, just like employers or a union boss can, I would say even more so. You're literally at their mercy for all of your basic needs to live. They control that. The long-term solution here is for Congress to make a correction to this federal law to limit the rights of assisted living facility owners, managers, and employees from assisting voters. County boards of elections already have multi-partisan assistance teams, or MATs. MATs are groups appointed by county boards of election to assist with mail-in absentee voting and other services to voters. They operate in bipartisan pairs, and that is the best way for assisted living facility residents to vote. It protects them from manipulation or intimidation. You got two people that show up, and they're both, you know, one from each party, basically. You can visit. And so this is what you need. If you have loved ones in any facility, you need to make sure that they're not getting taken advantage of. We got early voting on going on right now for inside city limits, right, for the Charlotte City Council races. You can help. You can volunteer to be a member of a multi-partisan assistance team. You just need to contact your local political party leaders or your county board of elections and see how you can volunteer. That's something you can do to help preserve election integrity. It has to be on the MAT, the Multipartisan Assistance Team. What else we got going on here? Going to run through a couple of uh, couple of articles. Let me see. This one, I actually, yeah, I did. All right. Um, legislative leaders in North Carolina registering their objections to a request to speed up the North Carolina Supreme Court's review of voter ID. Remember, the North Carolina Supreme Court took this case from the appeals court because the appeals court is made up predominantly of Republicans, and the Supreme Court is made up predominantly of Democrats. Two of those seats are on the ballot. Those Supreme Court seats are on the ballot in November. Democrats anticipate losing probably both of them. They're probably going to lose both of them. This In this election environment, uh, this political environment, heck, they lost the chief seat last time. 
And that was in an environment that was more conducive to Democrat wins. Right. Sherry Beasley got ousted by Paul Newby. So you got two seats right now. They are currently held by Democrats. And if those seats flip, just one of them flips, then Republicans have a majority. So this is the uh, this is the concern. And this is why I suspect that the Supreme Court with the Democrat majority, this is why they moved to take this case early. That's why they want it. Because the court of appeal, if you wait for the court of appeals to do it, then it's going to take longer, and you may not, and then you, you're going to have to wait for the appeals and all of that, and it's going to be after the election. So the calendar might not still might not allow the high court to uh, to hear the oral arguments and to hear the case before the election. So what to do? Well, if you're the plaintiffs in the case, the lefty groups, you ask for an expedited trial, and that's what they have done. Opponents of the voter ID have asked the state Supreme Court to schedule oral arguments in September or October. No. Why? Why not August? Is that too soon? But September would be perfect. Or October, you know, just as long as you can... Get the ruling back before the November election results or really before the December swearing in. Right. That's the key. The Supreme Court is considering a trial court's two to one ruling from September of 2021. Things almost a year old. And that ruling threw out the 2018 voter ID law and the 2018 voter ID law, you'll recall, was done after the referendum And the 2018 law was done after previous versions of our voter ID law was thrown out. This goes back a decade. North Carolina lawmakers have been trying to get voter ID in this state for a decade. After the passage of nearly 10 months from the Superior Court's final judgment, plaintiffs are now asking the court to expedite the hearing and consideration of the merits of the case. And to consider the merits of the case, this is according to a response filed by the attorney for the Republican legislative leaders. Her name is Nicole Moss. She labeled the proposal wholly unnecessary, wholly unnecessary in the nearly 10 months from the Superior Court's judgment and the several months since the plaintiffs sought the court's review. The plaintiffs have at no time asked to expedite this case. The plaintiff's new motion fails to offer any recent or emergent cause to grant such a motion now. In other words, why are you doing this now? What prompted this now? Why why wouldn't you have asked for the expedited oral arguments before? Why are you waiting till now? And why are you suggesting September or October? Which, by the way, September, October, that kind of time frame means that whatever the ruling is, it's going to come down during voting. Right. Early voting, absentee voting. It's going to come down at some point while the election is being administered. Now, if the Supreme Court decides we're not going to put the voter ID on the books, well, then I guess practically it doesn't have any kind of impact. Right. Because there's no change. But what if the Supreme Court? I know. I know this is nuts. But what if the Democrats on the Supreme Court turn around and say, you know what? Voter ID passed. There was a referendum put into the Constitution. This is the law to comply with it. 
and we're going to let it proceed. What then happens? Well, the plaintiffs would say you can't do that because we're right in the middle of an election. And I think this is called the Purcell doctrine or Purcell rule based on another case, which is generally speaking, the courts try not to upend elections that are underway. Right. You you don't change the rules after the election starts. I know a, a principle that was largely abandoned in 2020, but this is the the general norm. And so now if they turn around for some reason and they say, hey, yeah, you know what? We believe that uh, voter ID should stand then. Well, but it's not in place right now. And so the plaintiffs can then say, well, but you got to delay it until the next election cycle. And then, of course, they would file more lawsuits. Okay, but what if they turn around and they say, you know what? We would totally rule for you, but the Purcell principle exists. And so we're not going to rule for you. Yeah, this is. We all see what's happening here. We can all see what's going on for all of the the defenders of democracy and everybody who's so worried on the left about the uh, the reputation of the judiciary and the corruptibility of courts and all of that. Oh, the partisanship of the courts. The same people that told us that it was politicizing the judiciary to put D's and R's next to candidates' names when they run for judgeships, those same people are doing this. So this is why I don't believe that they argue in good faith on any of this stuff, because they don't. They don't. I've got another example of it, the Green Party. I mentioned this a couple of days ago, the North Carolina Green Party trying to get back on the ballot. And in, or, in order to do so, as a, as a recognized party, you have to you know, get a certain percentage of votes for the race for governor or federal office or something. And, you also, and if you don't do that, then they decertify your party. They, so then you got to go out and get petitions signed from people that want to see you back on the ballot. And it's a very low, I mean, I say very low, but it's like, I don't know, 15,000 signatures statewide. So the Green Party had to go do this again. And the Libertarian Party had to do this essentially like every four years for a very, very long time. But now they get like one and a half percent of the votes. And so it means that they don't get decertified every single election cycle. The Green Party does. Okay, so the Green Party is now having to go out and do the petitions. So they submitted the petitions and the Democrats on the state board of elections said, we don't believe our county boards of elections, which are also Democrat majority. We don't believe that their investigations or, or, or their review of the signatures was adequate. So we're now going to go and uh, and put this on hold. We reject these petitions. We're not going to let you on the ballot yet. Oh, and by the way, there's been a whole bunch of skullduggery committed by the Democratic National Political Party calling people, telling them, hey, I'm with the Green Party. You need to take your name off of the petition because it's really, we really need to work to elect Democrats. Oh, and also the, the challenges were brought by Mark Elias, the Elias group, that attorney, the super attorney, Hillary Clinton's attorney, the redistricting guy that sues on everything, works for Eric Holder's group. That guy, Mark Elias, his people... They went after the Green Party in North Carolina so they couldn't get on the ballot. These are the big defenders of democracy. They're trying to block the Green Party. And they said that we don't trust the signatures that are on these petitions. And they did comparisons of the signatures with each other and with other records. Today, that same Board of Elections said that the, um, the signature comparisons will not be used. 
when you vote absentee. The very same Board of Elections. Isn't that amazing? The Board of Elections voted no on signature matching for absentee ballots. It's good enough to keep the Green Party off the ballot, but it's not good enough to verify that you are who you say you are and the witnesses are who they say they are. When Democrats say democracy, what they mean is Democrats. News Talk 1110-993 WBT. All right, so the Green Party of North Carolina uh, just saw this uh, on the Twitter machine. They are now suing over uh, the Board of Elections' refusal to put them on the ballot. So uh, we shall see where that goes. And again, that was based on the, uh, the rejection by the State Board of Elections' Democrat majority, three to two, uh, to keep them off the ballot. I've, I went into, I mentioned some of the details. I can go into more of these details. It's pretty fascinating the way it's gone down. Um, so this is, and I, I give credit where it is due to Travis Fain, he of the fainting couch uh, at WRAL. Green Party leaders waited for North Carolina election officials to decide whether their candidates would be on the state's ballots this year. They started getting really weird messages. They collected thousands of signatures, far exceeding, at least they believed, far exceeding the state petition requirements for the smaller political parties to get candidates on the ballot list. You know, their candidates with the party affiliation, right? Then the party's candidate for U.S. Senate, Matthew Ho, H-O-H, he gets a text message asking whether he would remove his signature from the party's petition. Somebody calls him up. They didn't know who he was. He's a candidate, Green Party candidate. In effect, an unknown texter, presumably working off of a list of the petition signatures, right, was asking if he would like to help undo the Green Party's work and make it impossible for his own candidacy to advance. The rationale behind this text messaging campaign was this. Leftist Green Party candidates are going to take votes away from Democrats. That's the key. They say it would give Republicans a huge advantage. Well, Michael or Matthew Ho took a screenshot of these text messages and posted them onto Twitter. And the text message says, are you interested in asking the elections board to have your name removed? And he says, um, no. Also, the Green Party North Carolina co-chair, Tony Ndege, he got a phone call. Uh, basically asking the same thing. So he recorded some of the phone call. And three times, Indege asked whether the caller was working with the Green Party. And every time, the caller said yes. Yeah, Indege would know. Him being the co-chair of the party, right? He confirmed that he had signed the petition and that he indeed wanted Green Party candidates on the ballot. And then, based on the recording, the caller seems to read from a script. And says, quote, if the Green Party's on the ballot, it will take votes away from Democrats, giving Republicans a huge advantage. There's far too much at stake to let this happen. Our democracy. Right. And Dege replies, I'm confused. So if you're with the Green Party, why are you asking to remove, asking me to remove my name? And then the call disconnects. (laughs) 
About a week later, the State Board of Elections Democratic majority voted not to certify the Green Party, citing questions about some of the 22,000-plus signatures. They say there's an active criminal investigation with specific targets. The people being investigated are suspected of being responsible for more than 2,000 signatures. But here's the thing. It wasn't state investigators calling the Green Party candidate or the co-chairman. That was a separate effort by the Democrats, the defenders of democracy. See, Matthew Ho, the Senate candidate, was told that it was the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee reaching out to him. State Board of Elections um, got several letters from Michael Vincent Abuchowitz. Abuchowitz? Anyway, of Raleigh. Questioning dozens of signatures and the methods that the Green Party used in order to get them. They say they were, they were misled by the collectors of the signatures. There were people who wrote some letters, uh, wrote affidavits or declarations, three declarations from voters whose names appeared on the petition but said they never signed them. The letter to the Board of Elections with these people's names and stuff, the letters list Jacqueline Lopez as an attorney for this guy, Abuchowitz of Raleigh. Who is Jacqueline Lopez? Well, she's an attorney with the Elias Law Group. The Elias Law Group, Mark Elias's law firm, they submitted an open records request on June 3rd. What did they want from the Board of Elections? They wanted to see all of the signatures. Is it a coincidence that they do this records request, they get the list of signatures, and all of a sudden they start calling up all of these people who signed the petition, trying to get them to now reverse course, to recant essentially, and take their names off the petition, which would then mean the Green Party doesn't have enough signatures, which of course would then mean they don't get to appear on the ballot, which then gives Sherry Beasley, the former state Supreme Court Chief Justice gives her an advantage in the election because that's how you protect democracy, people. The Green Party submitted 22,000 signatures to county boards of elections around the state. Those county boards validated almost 16,000, and that would be enough to qualify as a political party on the ballot listed as such. But the state board of elections apparently does not trust the county boards of elections. Huh. We'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.